It's January the 5th, 2018. This is the Room Now Week in Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. And this week on Room Now, the new year, a lot of good news. A nice teaching point was covered in a review article that shows that patients who are hospitalized um, uh, and why they might get C. diff infections could be due to some of the drugs that we use. Certainly we know that antibiotics increase the risk of colonic colitis due to Clostridium difficile, but um, I was not really aware that PPIs, H2 antagonists, sucrophate, um, and then specific antibiotics uh, are associated with a higher risk, especially those PPIs and GI drugs. Um, carbapenems, cephalosporins, metronidazole, um, those are all, I think, fairly well known, but it is uh, PPIs. I've had a patient recently who's had two or three, three consecutive hospitalizations for C. difficile, all resolved when she stopped her PPI therapy. Uh, an interesting study appeared in the literature talking about HBV testing. Um, this was comes from Dan Solomon and colleagues where they did claims data and they looked at hepatitis B testing uh, and looked at uh, testing specifically in RA patients who were about to start a DMARD. They did this both in the United States and also in Taiwan. And they showed that the rate of hepatitis B testing in both the United States, 20%, and in Taiwan, 25% was really quite low and unexpectedly low. And this is, for all, of course, for all DMARDs. Certainly should be a high priority for methotrexate and Areva, um, but really should be done, I think, in all patients going on DMARDs because at some point they're going to be on some drug, either a biologic or a TNF that will need this. Specifically, they also showed that the U.S. was a little bit more likely to use more than one hepatitis test as opposed to just one that was 43 versus 16 percent comparing the United States to Taiwan. So again the rule here is that you must do testing and you must do more than one test. The test that I recommend is a hepatitis B surface antigen, a hepatitis B core antibody, a hepatitis B surface antibody, and a hepatitis C antibody test. The B surface antigen means active infection. Nobody should get a bad drug, a hepatotoxic drug, or a biologic. The core antibody uh, if positive, means that they have a resolved infection when the surface antigen is negative. And that means they may proceed, pres presuming they're not immunosuppressed. B surface antibody tells you that they're immunized or not, and that may be important in going forward. Uh, an interesting study comes from Corona this year looking at patients who started uh, either abatacept or a TNF inhibitor and looked at the influence of CCP positivity on either response. What they did show was that being CCP positive did not affect whether or not someone responded well to a TNF inhibitor. However, if you were CCP positive, you were far more likely to respond to abatacept, suggesting there's something unique about CCP positivity in patients who receive abatacept and rituximab and a few drugs. Other drugs, it doesn't seem to be a big issue. This, I think, is a useful biomarker when practicing medicine and prescribing the right next therapy. Uh, updated studies about chikungunya, a nice cohort study of their experience in Colombia, looked at 103 patients and found that uh, 33 of the seropositive uh, patients uh, also had the virus in, in the synovial fluid and that, 20, um, that almost between 25 and roughly 30% of patients had chronic arthritis lasting out to as much as 22 months. So there seems to be um, a cohort of patient, patients affected with this virus who may develop chronic arthritis that looks a lot like rheumatoid arthritis. When tested 22 months later, they had five tender joints, a mean of uh, three or three and a half swollen joints, 
and, and they often need to be treated as if someone who has a, a, a seronegative inflammatory polyarthritis. Uh, I threw in a good New Year's tip for both patients and doctors. Uh, medication safety tip number one, patients should keep an updated medication list and either bring the medication list or their, all their medicines to every visit. Otherwise, we the prescribers are guessing and that's not good for patients. Number two, bring the med list to all doctor visits, bring the drugs to all doctor visits. Number three, fill the same prescription medicine at the same pharmacy prescribed by the same doctor. If you start mixing it up from the patient side, that it's half are filled over there, half are filled over here, that's a, that's an, that's a prescription for both um, errors, polypharmacy, um, and increased uh, safety risk. Um, number four, take the drug as ordered, as prescribed, as it says on the label. One of the biggest mistakes that um, patients make is taking less medicine um, they think might be safer. In fact, taking less medicine is not safer. Taking less medicine is riskier and may expose you to higher risk, more disease activity, and therefore more problems. Take as ordered. Number five, when a prescriber um, prescribes a drug, he should be asked to discontinue a drug. Otherwise, physicians become the vectors of polypharmacy, which is a gigantic public health problem. Um, you may want to look on the website and find this uh, link to a TED video on the biology of knuckle cracking and why it feels good. This comes from a great rheumatologist in the UK, Eileen Tan, who uh, likes to tweet a lot of interesting stuff. She's interested in osteoarthritis. She's a runner. She's a health fiend. She's really a smart gal, and she found this great video, which is a really nice explanation as to why your knuckles crack when you do those things you do. And yes, it's not a bad thing. It's probably a good thing. Uh, what about the use of biologics in uh, patients with spondyloarthritis? Uh, an interesting study, the asas Como Spa study, looks at um, 22 countries, 3,370 patients, and looks at the uptake of either conventional DMARDs or biologic DMARDs um, in a sort of cross-sectional analysis. In this cohort, they found 38% or 1,275 people who were treated with a biologic. And this was, however, the point of the study was that it varied widely, being very low in some companies like China, where it was 5%, and very high in other companies like Belgium, where it was 74%. Behind Belgium were, not surprisingly, France, Colombia and the United States. Colombia, I was a bit surprised at. Uh, a lot in the literature this week about autologous um, stem cell transplantation uh, and its use in scleroderma. A single center study uh, from Northwestern, I believe, looked at 18 patients who received autologous, autologous stem cells uh, and, sh and looked at the profile and, and basically showed that, that uh, it was not only effective but generally safe. These are high-risk patients with bad disease. They did have four deaths. Um, and their takeaway message of their uh, single report was that there's a very strong need to select the right patients to reduce the toxicity when doing this therapy. Quite interestingly, um, to yesterday, the New England Journal published the results of the Scott trial. And you remember the Scott trial was, was uh, reviewed at the last ACR meeting. Um, uh, it, it was a, sort of the, the big deal. This was a, a trial of 75 patients from 26 centers uh, between 2005 and 2011, uh, they were randomized to receive um, um, uh, either a, a, a stem cell therapy or not. 
Um, their stem cell therapy included myeloblation with total body irradiation and then reconstitution with a CD34 uh, positive uh, autograft cells versus just receiving infusions of cyclophosphamide. 750 um, um, milligrams per meter squared for up to four years. Uh, when you looked at the data, it looked like there needed to be at least two years to see the differences between the groups, which is a little bit disconcerting, but that there were clear differences um, out at 48 months with 68% of the patients receiving uh, stem cell transplant um, responding to a multimodal uh, response definition. And that was uh, superior to the 32% seen in those receiving cyclophosphamide. So I think that's an, a, an important study that may change the way uh, we treat scleroderma. Certainly gives a lot of hope to patients who have severe advancing systemic sclerosis. Uh, also this week, interesting studies, two interesting reports in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, one, a, a, a meta-analysis uh, by um, Maria Suarez Almazar and her colleagues, another being the editorial to that report. And specifically, it looks at the issue of autoimmunity uh, and the use of these immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, as you know, these are new great advances in cancer chemotherapy. Um, and and um, Dr. Calabrese goes on to explain that, again, these immune checkpoints exist in all of us in a way to sort of put the brakes on when the immune system gets overactivated. And what has happened here is that now this is being therapeutically manipulated with these checkpoint inhibitors where you basically get rid of or diminish those breaks to reinvigorate uh, an exhausted immune response in the case of cancer. The problem is by reinvigorating these, uh, these mechanisms, you may bring about what has been seen as these Im immune-mediated um, adverse events as you know, there's a lot of autoimmune and inflammatory disorders that can result. There are hundreds of patients that are out there. Their common manifestations include things like RA, psoriatic psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, etc., and they may be difficult to treat. What is interesting here is that when these drugs are being developed, uh, patients who had autoimmune diseases were excluded. And so what uh, Suarez Almazar and colleagues did was they searched the literature. They found 49 publications in 123 patients who um, were, had 30 different uh, autoimmune or uh, inflammatory disorders who went on to receive these immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, and what they found, well, interestingly, was that 75% of them developed these immune-related adverse events that were um, like those seen in people without autoimmune disease. Um, and what we do know about these is that they often require uh, steroid therapy and or um, biologic therapy to control their disease. They can be difficult to control. This still remains an area uh, of great interest and, and how to manage them is going to be challenging going forward. Uh, I had a report along with Jeff Curtis in Journal of Rheumatology this week that you can see uh, that talks about the use of uh, serving rheumatologists to find out about how they use metrics in their practice and whether or not they practice treat-to-target therapy. We surveyed nearly 1,900 U.S. rheumatologists and had 439 respond to our 2014 survey. We compared that to the results seen in 2005 and 2009, um, and we found that basically um, uh, at the current time, 58% uh, of rheumatologists admit to doing some formal measure of disease activity or metric in the care of rheumatoid arthritis. We have seen that the, there's been a significant growth from 2005 and 2008 to the current time in the use of these, but despite that growth, 
um, you know, almost half are still not doing this. Um, the measures that are com most commonly being used in 2015 was the HAC score, any version of the health assessment questionnaire in 36% of people. 27% um, of U.S. rheumatologists do the rapid three, making it the most common and making it almost, uh, not, almost double, not quite double that of the CDI or the, the Clinical Disease Activity Index of Smolin uh, and Alitaha. And DASH 28 is being done by 15.7%. Uh, many, uh, very few uh, are doing um, uh, esoteric things like the GAS score, which is what I advocate for uh, in my practice. But uh, the Vectra MBDA, a biomarker of, of disease activity, is being done by 12.8% of rheumatologists. Um, the, the study went on also to show that if you uh, provide information in varying amounts and the more metrics you provide, do people in fact give um, more, change their therapy? Well, they do are more likely to give more drugs um, with more information, but it does not appear from that data to show that they in fact practice a treat-to-target um, uh, approach in the care of RA. So again, uh, metrics and their role in practice remains to be defi defined. Uh, lastly, there's an interesting report that mirrors some of the data seen at the last ACR meeting in 2017, and that is that bone marrow edema can be found not just in people with inflammatory disorders, but it's also found in normals, athletes and military recruits. Uh, at the ACR, there were two such abstracts making the same point. This particular abstract in the literature looks at 22 military recruits who had uh, MRI of their SI joints and went through six weeks of vigorous military recruit training and then had a repeat MRI of their SI joints. They found that before they began training, 40% had uh, evidence of, of SI joint bone marrow edema, that's 41% in fact, and that this did increase to, by 9% to 50% after six weeks. This is not a significant increase. And the same kind of uh, uh, minor change, non-significant change, was seen for those meeting the ASAS definition of sacroiliitis. So um, this basically says that, that these uh, bone marrow uh, findings that might suggest underlying damage and or inflammation may be seen in normals. They can be seen in hockey players and in athletes. Um, and they may not be indicative or specific for inflammatory disease. There are measures that do make them specific, including the depth of them, the severity of them, the placement of them, but uh, by and large, just by itself, marodema is not a specific finding for inflammatory disease. That's it uh, on Room Now uh, this week. You can go to the website and find these citations uh, and learn more about these particular reports. You can subscribe to our reports on uh, YouTube, on iTunes, and new, um, in addition to SoundHound, we're now on Stitcher. You can, if you like Stitcher and you listen to podcasts on Stitcher on your Android phone or any phone, you can subscribe to the Room Now We Can Review podcast on Stitcher. That's it. Have a good week. Have a happy new year.